You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, I got a windsock. You do. We uh, we are continually upgrading the equipment at the Two Guys Talking Wine studio. Did you uh, did you find this one by the side of the road? It has a funny smell to it. I just smelled mine. I got a two-pack of them from Amazon. I can assure you that mine does not smell funny. <laughs> I just wanted to see if the, uh, you would actually smell the windsock. So. <laughs> I missed you so much. Um, I thought we would open the show with a bottle of Chardonnay that I found in Niagara that I was actually a little bit surprised to find. Um, actually, my look at my shocker that you're opening a bottle of Chardonnay. <laughs> well, uh, nose is pretty good. Let's see, we can dive right into it. It's uh, really more pineapple-y. It's um, from the 2021 vintage. It is from the 2021 vintage, which is a very kind of a wet, kind of, you know, demonstrably terrible vintage in Ontario. You know, I, I, it's something I've been telling everyone is you and I are very careful on the podcast that we're trying to um, eliminate the terms good and bad vintage from our vocabulary. But now I, I talk a, about as, hot and cool vintage, but, but now I think, as a vigneron, you should be I very... I think 21 is, is objectively a bad vintage. It's a terrible vintage. Um, this isn't bad. There's like a bit of a salinity to the finish. Uh, notes are a little... Nose is a bit bruisey on it, which would, I guess, tell me maybe some oxidated choices in the winemaking. 12.5% alcohol. I'm, I'm looking at the bottle. Yep. Uh, that jives with the, with the vintage and the rain. Um... This one says reserve on it. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it's it's certainly not not great. This is from Featherstone. Yeah, um, I I'll be honest with you. Had you not shown me the label uh, and knowing it was Featherstone, um, I wouldn't have guessed it was Featherstone. Well, uh, I, I've been I'm, I've been long a fan of the Canadian oak. I have too, and um, they're sold out of the 2021 at the winery, and. Um, so I have to wait for it to come out at the LCB, but they had this available. And, and the other thing, too, I think we need to maybe give uh, Dave a call here, is it's uh, VQA Ontario, yeah, which, which tells me that the fruit is not coming from, uh, from elsewhere as well. Which, again, uh, makes me surprised that it would be a reserve wine. I, I was actually just pleased and surprised to see that Featherstone finally has a reserve tier. Um, yeah. I, I've, been, I've been long saying, like, like Featherstone is well. That's what Onyx was about in the Reds. Yeah, but but that's one right. Like they now have a reserve uh, Riesling to go with the regular Black Sheep Riesling. Like I've always been confused about the fact that they don't have like a barrel selection program, and and they're working with the right varieties. Like whether you like you said, whether you want to do a Cab Franc Merlot blender, a straight reserve Merlot or reserve Cab Franc. I somehow remember that back in the day, Black Sheep was the reserve, and then they had a regular Riesling. Wow. Okay. And and then. Uh, now, if Louise is listening, I you know please you know update me again. But I was positive Black Sheep became a reserve, and then just they kind of they just kind of morphed into you know Black Sheep being the Riesling all the time. Uh, Onyx, I remember being the best vintage, best 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 red wine in in the best vintages. You know, so you know I think it came back in 2020. Might come back in 2022 if they have the grapes for it. Uh, I'm disappointed to see that, you know, this is a VQA Ontario. Uh, I'm disappointed to see it's got a reserve label on it because I would think that would be a state fruit that you would save for your reserve line. I'm I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of disappointed in the wine. I'd, I'd like to ask some more questions before saying disappointed because the thing is if they're working with maybe fruit from select sites like 
let's just say they had a chance to work with a great vineyard, uh, great uh, vineyard in Niagara on the Lake that they blended in. But I mean, it doesn't say that on the bottle. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm tepid at best. Yeah, the the wines. I think the wine's good, but it's also like priced to reflect it. It's not a super expensive wine. I think I spent like twenty nine or thirty one on this. Still, I'm, now okay for a reserve. Yeah, you expect to to pay that, but uh, again, uh, I would. Um, Sorry, Louise. Sorry, Dave. Uh, I would not rush out and buy that. Well, there we go. And, um, that, and that's for like that's the first taste. Like I mean, like that's. Uh, are you going to drink what's in your glass? Or are you going to dump it? <sighs> oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I I was considering dumping it over the fence to tell you the truth, because we are in your backyard. We are the so. uh, the Hamilton studio. Yeah. So. I am so the real reason. I guess it's the thing about the magic of podcasting is um, we're recording this on May seventeenth, which means yesterday people heard the f- fresh episode where we were getting ready for you to take your trip. Yep, you're now back from your trip. It has. I can't believe four weeks went away. Went away. I went away, and it was four weeks, and now I'm back, and I feel um, like I want to go back. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, when I talked to you on the weekend when you got back, you said that you were uh, happy to be back. Sorry, um, I, I sorry. I just pulled up the uh, pulled up the tasting notes on this. Uh, machine harvested, crushed, destemmed into Canadian oak barrels, 50% malolactic, 100% Canadian oak barrels for 10 months, stirred on leaves monthly. Um, it says Appalachian VQA Niagara Peninsula, so I'm not sure why it says VQA Ontario on the front. Like maybe, I don't know, maybe there was a technicality on this. And it doesn't also doesn't taste Canadian oak, right? Uh, I think it tastes as Canadian oak as some of the other stuff. No, the coconut is something I get off of Canadian oak, and I uh, get not none always. of it. Not always. none of it. Not always. It's kind of a hallmark. All right, all right. Well, let's get let's get onto it. Where um, <laughs> we're going to be doing we're going to be doing two episodes here. Okay. This is the first of two where we're uh, summarizing what you did on your trip. Okay, we're taking a bit of a break from interviews. Just you know, full disclosure, it's tough to line up interviews when you're five time zones away from me. Correct, and then I and, then and you didn't the, have great access to great internet while you were there. No, I never do. And then and then the uh, the interesting part is that we are going to kind of kind of swap places in uh, in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I was just in France. Uh, and then I was in Italy to start with, and now you're going. I'm going back to Italy, and you're going to France. That's right. One of these days, we're going to be in the same country at the same time, but probably not in the same region. That would be the funnier part. No, it would be so, funny. So. Well, we could definitely record a podcast that way. So, um, so I'm trying to keep us more organized. Got I made it. a Google Doc for Got this, it. and um, I didn't fill my section. You out. did not do your homework very well. You were a bad. You were a bad group assignment person. I'm going to yeah. chalk it up to a little bit of jet lag, though, where it's just like I came to you with like homework on yeah. this. Yeah, I've been home a week trying to, you know, I basically I have my, my email program sucks email into the cloud for yep. me. And um, and then what I can do is I can delete stuff I don't need and keep the stuff I do, but it stays on the main server until yep. I delete it from one specific spot. So when I got back, I had like over 500 email that I literally just had to go through. That's it? Well, I, I was downplaying that a little bit. Okay, because uh, when I was working at Bell Media, uh, I would get over 100 emails a day. Yeah, so... And you were gone for a month, so... Well, I, I was able to, to batch uh, get rid of stuff. As in, you know, the, the, the bots from Russia, I could easily kind of just delete that. But I had like 500 that I actually had to deal with, blah, blah, blah. And the Rosé Report is starting up, so... Uh, yes, Rosé so- Report, if you're working for a winery and you're listening to this, um, hit Michael up. 
Uh, I think the Rosé Report's getting a little bit better every year. Um, you know, Last year was the first year that you went to Good, Better, Best, yep. which I think was a vast improvement Thank because the, um, the previous year you were stuck with a lot of 2020s that were frankly quite tepid just with the challenges yep. of the 2020 growing season of maintaining acid. Yep. So you end up with a Rosé Report full of three-star reviews, which Correct. really did... Nothing for anyone. Yeah. yeah. So now, now everything's based on. Uh, um, well, I had this discussion with somebody while I was away because we were tasting uh, rosés, obviously. So there's going to be uh, rosés from uh, the Loire Valley, from Languedoc, from Roussillon, from where I was. So there'll be yeah. little sections about those. Um, but I was having a, a debate with somebody about uh, rosé, and they're like, "Oh, this one doesn't, you know, it has no complexity." Blah blah blah. And I said, "That's really not what." The consumer is looking for in a rosé. I don't think anybody is going. Wow, I, I really want more complexity in my rosé. They want something that they can, you know, sit on the patio and drink and drink another bottle and another bottle. And that's kind of what you're looking for in a lot of rosé. But I mean, but I mean, that's what's important about your report is there. You do factor in QPR, so quality to price yep. ratio. Um, because I actually dis- disagree. Because this is what I'm finding with um, with when pigs fly. Uh, you know, every year we make it. I think we're learning a little bit more. Like our winemaker Adam, like we're we're not taking leftover juice. We're certainly not just throwing it in a stainless steel tank and and going to town with it. Uh, this year's the 2022 when Pigs Fly Rosé, as far as I know, was fermented in like five or six different parts before it was blended together. And and we are shooting for a little bit of complexity. That being said, we're pricing it so that I guess I would say a typical consumer can get their hands on it. But also like I am seeing higher-end restaurants responding to Correct. the complexity as, in our rosé. As, as long as it's a, as a, as a good rosé and has something to offer as well. So, There is a chuggability factor to yes. it, but there's also a you know flavor factor that also goes into it. You know, Surprisingly, I, I just started much of the tasting, and uh, one of the ones that I, I thought maybe I'm just biased from last year or that I was interested was a, a Stonely called lighter rosé which is one of those hundred calorie rosés and yeah, I yeah. Thought, was it good last year? I, and and I thought what a what a crocker you know what but it was actually a really good rosé and it's shown up again this year and I thought okay maybe I was I was taken in by the you know the lighter thing and you know at 9.5 and not really and not sweet and everything like that but again it's it's a it's a really good you know $19 quaffable rosé that you can right, probably right, we're doing We're doing what in the business we would call burying the lead a little bit. Like, the rosé report's going to come out. We don't got need it, to trickle out it. bits and pieces of it. But, I mean, just with regards to, like, the low-calorie movement and the low-alcohol and the, the 0% um, alcohol wine movement. I, I don't want to see 0%. No, no, I, I, get that, I get that. But I think it's just, like, w- with what we're seeing with changes, I guess, in... Um, technology and consumer demand you and i are keeping an eye on when the good products are coming out but i actually feel that with a lot of this like low calorie lower alcohol winemaking we're kind of where vegan cooking was maybe 20 30 years ago where you're getting the idea of just like a bowl of lettuce yeah. sorry a, a bowl full of lettuce with nothing on it where i think it's just gonna take a little while for that market to develop and also uh, intrepid winemakers to find a way to make these products Super delicious. I, I was well, super delicious, but I find them very quaffable and, and easy. The, the two or three that I've had, so uh, I'm sure there will be more this year and then going forward. I I have to believe I'm going to be seeing more and more and more. Um, you know those lighter style of rosés that are you know hopefully going to be be a lot better. All right, so let's get into your trip, and I'm going to preface this by saying that I have a bone to pick with the LCBO. Okay, as usual, but it's one of the big differences between how you and I wine travel. Yeah. 
you tend to come back with stuff that will help you breeze through customs. You'll bring back olive oil, you'll bring back whatever goodies, but you tend to stay away from bringing a lot of wine with you. And also, you spent a month on the road. Correct. Right? Yeah. Uh, when I travel, I don't mind going over my limit. I always declare everything. Um, I pay duty when it's charged to me, but I generally bring back a suitcase full of wine. So when we were talking about Italy, I was excited because you went to Montefalco. I did. Um, I've had a chance to taste Sagrettino maybe two or three times in my life. I've always really enjoyed it, but also found it difficult because it reminds me a little of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo with these wines that are crazy high tannin, uh, kind of chalky, like cocoa-like tannins. Uh, they take a long time to soften, but I imagine that when they are properly aged, they can be quite nice. You agreeing? And the one can see you nodding. Oh, I, I am not. I'm just waiting for your question because the, you're doing one of those. You oh, know, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, so, you, my you, bo- so my bone with the LCBO is because you don't bring wine with you, I wanted to go grab um, a Sagrantino for oh, you and yeah. I to enjoy or at least discuss. You know, like I said, we're a little disappointed with the Chardonnay. So it's too bad the LCBO doesn't have a Sagrantino for us to enjoy they, while we're talking about it. They, they obviously don't have one on the general list. Uh, they don't have one. Um, in the Vintage's Essentials, which I think is a crime. They should at least find one yeah. that they could do. Um, and, you know, and the big problem, uh, traditionally with Sagrantino wines are that, as you mentioned, it takes a long time for them to come, you know, into, into, uh, drinking mode, let's say. And the, uh, and I think finally, after I think this is my third, third year going to Montefalco, um, and tasting like older Sagrantino because they do put a little some of the older stuff onto the tasting panel, and then you there's, it's a really interesting trip because you have to, you end up going to a whole bunch of different wineries, um, and uh, and and tasting their wines. And here's the good news: I do have somebody lined up for our podcast. Right on. Sometime in July or August, we'll be talking to somebody from Sagrantino who used to be the mayor of Montefalco. Oh, that's has cool. His winery. So you right, can tell right, us. Right, you right. can tell us all about Montefalco. You can tell us all about Sagrantino. But the the interesting part is that a lot of winemakers are starting to realize that at some point you get too much ageable Sagrantino in your cellar. Yeah, and they're gonna have to start making ones that are a little bit more fresh, a little bit more palate friendly. And now you are starting to see more Sagrantino aged in older barrels. And um, and larger barrels, and because of that, um, they are not as tannic, not as uh, I'm, I'm going to use a term that's going to get me in trouble here, ball bustery, uh, as they used to be. And I am finding that you know instead of twenty years, maybe the still last twenty years because of the acidity, because of the of the the great variety itself, but. I found that there were more that I could probably put on a table within the next year or maybe even now, and over the course of an evening would open up enough that you would go, yeah, that's a that's a good bottle of wine now. You know, it's it's fascinating where I just think about, like, I talk, I've been, as everyone can tell on the podcast, like, my mindset has shifted a little bit more to the marketing side because of the changes in my career. Uh, but I think about... The number of consumers that get the level of wine knowledge to really appreciate those wines that need 20, 30 years in the cellar, and then at what point in your life you get the wine knowledge that will really equip you to appreciate those wines when they age over time. And this is what I found frustrating about my trip to Abruzzo was like, I'm going to be 40 this year, 
and I'm not really stocking my cellar with wines that I can't drink till I'm 65 or won't peak until they're 65. Like I love giving wines time to age in the cellar. Like the, the Montebello that we talked about earlier this year, after a decade, like I'm, I'm cool picking up something this year for my 50th birthday. Like that, I don't feel like that is an obscene time commitment. And it's also like, it's enough where if I really find a wine that I enjoy and I can pick up a bottle every few years, like I'm hoping I'm going to be around till I'm 70 or 75 or 80, be able to pick it up, up enough to enjoy them. But if I discover Montefalco, uh, Sagratino, and I find this great producer, but the wines aren't ready till the 25, I start buying them. Like, you know, it's, I guess it's like an RSP. I don't get to enjoy it till I'm 65. And if I keep buying it like 65, 60, like how many more of those bottles am I going to get to enjoy? Well, as I said, you know, if you go back, you know, if you, if you started 10 years ago, then now you'd be, you know, but, in, but I didn't in, know in enough 10 years ago, but that's the thing. I didn't know enough 10 years ago to be able to appreciate it. But, but if you start now, you're, you're now in a five to 10 year window, which I think is really nice. Um, because so, and, 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 you know, you talk about burying the lead and everything, but, but, um, you know, the, the, the gentleman is, uh, I love his name, Valentino Valentini. Oh, that is a great name. So, uh, Valentino will be on and he'll, he can talk to us about his process of, of, of his, I think it was a five year process that he went from just every year cutting down his, his, not just his new oak, but his, his barrique barrels, 20%, then another 20%, then another 20%. Uh, until he hit that five-year mark where everything he was doing was in very large foudre. And and so by doing that, he basically got rid of a lot of oak influence in his wine. Yeah, and the wood tannin. And by tasting all those, because I did that tasting with him, and he was, now this was, this was pre-pandemic, and, and so he was just in the process of, I think it was two years away from being finished what he wanted to do. Um, but you could tell the difference between like, you know, early Sagrantino to 20%, 40%, now 60%, you could really start to tell the difference that these wines were starting to really change. Well, a- a- apart from drinkability, like making wines that are ready to rock a little bit sooner, do you find there was a difference in overall quality moving from more new wood to less new wood and less wood in general? Well, I, I think that the Italians in general are are starting to do that. Uh, not just starting. They have been doing it for a while, and we're yeah. starting to now see it in the glass. Uh, I remember going to Tuscany, going to a winery called Valdesuga, and they were talking about, they did a, like a 40-year retrospect of their wines, and somewhere in the middle, in the 80s, 90s, you know, early 2000s, they're starting to talk about the parkerization of their wines, yeah. and you could really see the, the wood influence in those wines. And then I guess somebody finally, you know, snapped their head back, and they went, why are we trying to, you know, make wines that are like this that, that to please one man, you know, well, but I mean, or, was- or his and his followers yes. when, when we're killing, you know, the fruit characteristics that are in uh, Sangiovese? Yeah. And, and so and then you could so you could see that that as a retrospective went, you saw, you saw the old versions, which were aging beautifully. And then you went into those over oaked versions, which were just like liquid wood. Yeah. And then you moved again into that other part. Now, granted, they're much younger wines, but you could see how they were getting back to that old style uh, of not trying to placate the, the, the uh, you know, the parkerization, the, two by, the, yeah, the two by four lovers of this world, you know. So Shadow Two by Four was right there in the middle, but the 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 bookends were really interesting. And I think I think um, Montefalco Sagrantino are starting to figure out that you know less wood is good, 
And um, now if you want to start getting into the, the wines that I really liked while I was there, um, you know, I like Sagrantino. I think it's a, it's a great wine. As you said, you just need, need more time. But I was really digging on the Rosos this year, which is just the red wines. It's Sangiovese, um, which I think is, is it, you know, they've, they've overcorrected also in some of their labeling. Uh, very similar to what we experience here in Ontario. Okay. Um, so, so you're allowed Sangiovese. You can put a, an, an international variety in there as well. So you do, you know, say 70% uh, Sangiovese. You do 20% Merlot. And then they have now written on the bottle other indigenous varieties. Well, the other indigenous variety is Sagrantino. But according to the new rules, you can't put Sagrantino there because Sagrantino has to appear on the bottles of just straight Sagrantino, Montefilco Sagrantino. Yeah. So they've changed the the law to be you can't put Sagrantino on a bottle unless it's Montefalco Sagrantino. Now it has to say other indigenous varieties. But if you know, you know the region, you know it's that's but, but, the indigenous okay, variety. But here's the thing. So so who is the Rosso made for? Are these wines that are generally more affordable, ready to drink, Correct. or are these? Yeah. Or are these wines that are made for people like you and me? Or are they made for for general public or, or for snots like us? So so the Rosos are, are made to, to drink. They are okay. the you know the the chill them down a little bit, enjoy them. Um, you know you can get into the Rosso Reserve, which kind of gets more into our ballywick of of the way of the world. Um, but again. Here's here's my here's my other problem with the the reserve uh, in in Italy and and I've had I've had conversations with winemakers about this especially in Brunello um, where you know reserve for the Italians means longer in oak and one of the uh, one of the producers Bonfi who I was speaking with they were like I don't know why we are still stuck in the world of reserva where it has to be more an oak, what we should be looking at are now single vineyards, uh, what they call crew, just like they do in Burgundy. Well, and that's, I, what they're, that's the way they're looking at. And I, I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, those consortios and, and all of those start to think in the way that we should be single vineyarding. I just turned that into a verb. I'm okay um, uh, We should be single vineyards, not, you know, looking at two years in oak or three years in oak, which is not really helping the wine in any way, shape, or form. You want to call it reserve, as long as you can prove that it's, you know, one vineyard, one block, one whatever, maybe that becomes the reserve. I, I, but I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with that on, on one side. Like, I like I do, I do like the ability to name a vineyard, but you can do that without calling it reserve, reserva, right. or something like just literally put the name of the vineyard on the bottle. That's but, what I'm doing. That's what Thomas is doing. Like, hang on, hang on. But I actually don't mind having terms like reserve and reserva used as long as they're regulated because it's about setting an expectation for the consumer. If you start doing single vineyard designation and, and setting that as reserva, the consumer will not know what to expect when they pick up a bottle. Well, you always you, you, like if you look at Bonfi, they always put their vineyard on there. Yeah. But but what I'm going to ask you, and I. I I've not rehearsed this with you in any way, shape, or form, so I have no idea what you're going to answer. Perfect. So, and I've never asked you this question before. What wines do you find more exciting? Ones that say reserve on the label, and you know that they are, you know, properly reserve, or ones that are single vineyard? I actually don't care about the term reserve. I, I care about what Correct, the wines but, taste good and, and what But what the question is, in, in, your, in your experience, right, you get two bottles on the table, three bottles, four bottles, whatever, 
Which ones are you more excited to taste, single vineyard or reserve? It depends on the region and what we're doing. I'll just answer the damn question. Well, no, but I mean, there's, yes, not, you, there's not a... There's not a so a, you're, you're equivocating. There's Which not a simple answer to this. Yeah, there is. Are we talking about Ontario here? I'm talking about anywhere. If we're talking about, if we're talking about Ontario, 100% single vineyard, because reserve is a nonsense term that the VQA doesn't regulate. So why wouldn't you also uh, bring that everywhere you go? Because I, I see a single vineyard on a table, yeah. and I am more excited to try that than if it's side-by-side side with the reserve, and the guy says, oh, we just, you know, it's, it's just longer in oak. Okay, whereas, but- whereas the single vineyard... I, I and they, and and then they say, you know what? This is a single vineyard, and this is a single vineyard, and this is a single vineyard, and they give you three single vineyards and one reserve wine. I learn more from those single vineyards than I do from the reserve. I, I would agree. I would agree with that. But I mean, to flip the script on you a little bit, like I'm still dipping my toe in the pool of Italy and trying to learn the stuff that I've learned from the master classes with Michael Goodell and the podcast that you and I have done from the Anteprima. I like the fact that I can go to the Tuscan section of the LCBO and know the difference between a Reserva and a Gran Reserva for Chianti Classico and have a bit of an idea of what to expect. Like when you grab a Gran Reserva, I know that I'm going to get more vanilla. I know I'm going to get more of that wood tannin, especially if I'm drinking them young, versus a Reserva that's going to give me a little bit, generally speaking, a little bit more depth than a regular Chianti Classico. I know the lines are a bit blurred when you're dealing with very good producers, but... I like that, but I also like that in Chianti Classico that those terms are highly regulated so that as a consumer, Correct. I know what I'm picking up. Yes. When you, when reserve is a nonsense term, it doesn't do any service to anyone in the industry. Correct. So anywhere new world. Yeah, like Chile, is it's, it's a joke. In Ontario, it's a joke. Well, Chile, I think you have to be, you know, I, I think it's all about, uh, it's got to be a half a degree alcohol higher, which reserve my even, even then i don't even know if, if that's like for sure right like i've heard mixed things even on my tr- anyways i i maybe somebody I, who I, it's uh, listening from wines of chile can help us with that one too because no, that's what, I, that's the thing that's the only difference in a reserve that i've ever heard from chile is that it's got to be half a degree of alcohol higher and i'm like if that's your reason to call it reserve then shame on you well i i appreciate the um i appreciate the thoughtfulness of, of the discussion that we just just had there in terms of like you know, I, I do think it is – I don't like government intervention in a lot of things, but at the same time, I like having a unified set of rules, especially when you're dealing with farmers, so that consumers can know what to expect. I think I think that's important, as long as the rules being put in place aren't exclusionary. Like, I, I mean, I, I'd have big problems if – you know, and I, I've been a bit nervous seeing where things are going. If people start talking about, like, a grand crew system in Ontario, and the thing is, that would mean that a small handful of people win – the financial lottery to be able to put Grand Crew on their bottles, depending on who gets decided what site, because it's not like I have access to buy two rows of the Lowry Vineyard or access to buy eventually buy two rows of you know the Le Grand Clos Vineyard. Anyways, that's that's a, you know, that's a whole separate thing. A you know, conversation that, another that, time. That would yeah, that would be an interesting because who who would you put on the Grand Crew if you were on that panel? I would love Look, to have that discussion, uh, but but I I, like, I, mean, I, think, I think some of those old Cave Springs vineyards would would uh, would hit in the Grand Cru. I, but that's I it though. As some, soon as yeah. we start letting people in Ontario use those terms, though, it, it excludes like anyone new who plants a vineyard from having access to what would likely be. A, Do you a know marketing if, term. if uh, the the terms are regulated in Ontario? They're not regulated. Well, I mean, they're regulated that if you put it on a bottle, that the French would likely be pretty pissed off if we started throwing Grand Cru around willy nilly because Grand Cru means something in the different regions of France. Correct, but what stops you from using them? I don't think they're they're not a location. I'll have to uh, I'll have to check with our legal counsel on that before we follow up. 
Um, just moving on a, a little bit, there was something interesting that you talked about because um, at Montefalco, was it an entrepreneur you were at or something it was, similar? Yes. Yep. And um, you said you were traveling with some Quebecois journalists. Yes. And um, mostly in the Loire, mostly in the Loire in France. In France, okay, yeah. okay. So Montefalco was not uh, was not highly. Uh, I saw Tony Astler; he was there. Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. But you, but you talked. You know, so for the next podcast, we are going to dive into France. But um, for wine travel, this is something where I actually think you and I are completely aligned, especially in terms of the type of content we create. My radio show, this podcast, your fantastic website, your Instagram account at the grape guy at Andre wine review. Um, kind of when you go to France and you go to Italy, do you beeline to the producers who are in the market in Ontario? Or do you look for something new that you hope will come to Ontario? Now is, is that like the hook for people to listen to next podcast? Or you want me to answer that now? No, let's answer that now. So oh, we can just right. get straight into, into France the next one. All right. Cause I want to uh, ask you more questions about tourism in the next podcast. Yeah. Right. So, uh, no, I don't beeline to anything that I actually, I don't beeline to, no, I don't beeline to anything that we have here. Me neither. I do a lot of mass tastings though. Uh, meaning, um, I don't look at, um, at the labels. Um, a lot of these things, they give you a booklet, they give you a, a spreadsheet, and I'm just looking at, okay, so I'm tasting number one, number two, number three, number four. I make my notes, and away I go. I'm not even looking at the producer half the time. Um, I know that uh, you mentioned some of the people I, I was traveling from, uh, from, uh, from Quebec. Yeah, uh, we, don't, we don't need to call anyone out, because we have a lot of... Frankly, I think the... Um I think the wine writing community in Quebec is a hell of a lot more collegial than it is in Ontario. Oh, I so and I always look to Quebec with admiration. So even though we might be disagreeing philosophically with how a Quebecois journalist would approach the tasting, we're doing it with love. No, I, I, I love all the ones that, that I meet from Quebec. They're wonderful people. Uh, and it seems that there is a, a, a great wine writing community. And they all, seem to know, they all seem to know each other too, right? Yep. Well, it's, it's Quebec. It's a small right. place. So, um, but... They were beelining, a lot of them were beelining to, and had done homework on the ones that they have in their local market. And yeah, I, I was like, that. why? Why wouldn't you want to, you know, push the SAQ into getting better stuff? I constantly want to, you know, talk to the LCBO, but they don't listen to me about, you know, the stuff that your guys are buying are just, you know, mass produced pieces of garbage that we get on our general list when there is just so much fantastic stuff out there that is relatively cheap well let me let me let me say this like this is a notch in uh, a notch on, on in your belt um in terms of the, the success for what we're doing i think tasting what isn't in the market lets us know whether or not what we're getting in the market is good that's what broke my heart about the first time i went to beaujolais it's also what made me fall in love with beaujolais it's also why i do not spend money on beaujolais from the lcbo i'm doing consignment orders from agents because the LCBO buyer does not understand what good Beaujolais is. Well, I, I just to get onto the Beaujolais thing, I had tried some Louis Jadot that I had liked years ago. Yeah. That was that used to be, a, I think it was Generalist or maybe Vintages Essentials. Not sure, but I really liked it. It was just a straight Louis Jadot Beaujolais, and I liked that. Loved what we were doing here with it here in Ontario. Obviously, Gamay is what we're talking about. Yeah. So I was always a, a kind of a Gamay fan. Um, I didn't drink a lot of Beaujolais because you know the Georges Duboeuf stuff was pretty terrible that we got, and, and it's finally turned the corner. I, I I hate to say this, but the death of of Georges Duboeuf does seem to be a turning point in terms of the the quality there. And when I visited the winery, 
I, I like you don't want to speak ill of, of the dead, especially given the fact that Beaujolais on the map is largely because of George Dubuff, but there may have been a cellar palate situation because the the point of pride when I visited the winery was that Mr. Dubuff was tasting every wine that leaves the facility and the quality was not great. So yeah, you know that that you know that does happen sometimes the death of an owner uh helps. I, I don't know if uh if um George if uh, Harold Ballard really helped the Leafs when he died, oh but my I God. Mean, but I mean, you know, it's a sports reference I could throw out there as well. But um I remember when you and I went to Saguenay, and I wish we could figure out a way to go again, although our favorite meat shop just closed. I, I know. R.I.P. the main deli. We're going to have to go line up at friggin' Schwartz's. Schwartz's. Oh, my God. Celine Dion our money. Although I understand there's a guy in Thornhill that's supposedly making some like outstanding smoked meat, and somebody was uh, was uh, telling me about that while um, while I was in Montreal. So we got to search this guy out. Anyways, let's focus. Let's focus. Let's, but, let's let's put this thing to bed here. Let's get your finish your point and get put this thing to bed so we can move on. Now, to now two. I don't remember what my point was, Andre. I think I've I've gone into. Well, we were talking of, about George Dubois, oh, the okay, death so, of owner, sell it, sell so, Saguenay. That's right. So when we were in Saguenay, I was just stuck on smoked meat for a second there. Um, so when we were in when we were in Saguenay, um, surprisingly, the year the first year we were there, uh, it was um, sponsored by Beaujolais. And, yes. Uh, oh, we did a fantastic tasting. We did a great tasting of Beaujolais. And I'm drinking Cherubles. That was another one that we did. But um, the one that I remember you saying is uh, uh, Dominique Piron. Wait. And, uh, you know, even when I'm in Quebec now, I'm always looking for Dominique Piron's stuff and and picking some up. And, uh, you know, we get it from... Uh, Lifford. Lifford is who brings well, that okay, in. Okay, just just to like to Dominique Piron's horn a little bit right now. The thing I love about Piron is it, it, I think it's the perfect wine where, like, my taste in wine has gotten a little bit more expensive than yours these days. Uh, like I don't mind spending the money where you're looking for value. Yep. I'm still looking for value as well. The thing with Beaujolais is like, a lot of the icon producers in the market now, you're looking at 50, 60 bucks a bottle, which I, yeah. even I have a hard time justifying spending the money. While Dominique Piron maybe aren't the most biodynamic or organic or shishi or, or low end. Yeah, we can talk producers. about that if you want. Uh, we can definitely edit at, 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 at a later date, but for conventional farmers, they definitely are producing wines at a very, High level at a very reasonable price, even I, with the prices creeping up. Look it, it, at the SAQ; um, they always say Ontario's prices are lower, but we don't get wine like Dominique Piron, right? You're looking for French wine. Quebec is still the place to go, um, and it's amazing. Uh, I know we've gotten off of Montefalco and Sagrantino, but it's amazing how um, the French love Quebec. Speaking of the French, this is the perfect place to wrap up this podcast because we're going to do a look at what you tasted in France, where you went. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone's picked up on the podcast. So we don't talk about a whole lot. You're a bit of a picky eater. Yeah. So I'm always curious about what culinary delights you discover on your trips. Cause I, when I do the tourism for me, it's wine and food go hand in hand. So we're going to pick up on that two weeks from now when uh, you and I will be busy traveling. So follow us both on Instagram at Andre wine review and at the grape guy you've consolidated. I have mostly at the grape guy. Um, Facebook is not as easy to do as I thought it would be. <laughs> Who uh, uses Facebook anymore except anyway. for grandmothers? So yeah, that's Michael Pincus. But in fact, if you if you www.grapeguy.com.com, the grapeguy.com. Yeah, because I was about to buy the grapeguy.ca 
under you and which, I was going to be a turd about it. Which I have. I have the grape dye.ca. Yep. But um, uh, so they, um, yeah, you can, you can find me there too. Right on. Uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. All of the links are in the show notes now. Look at you. Still working on those best practices. Um, AndreWineReview.ca. I have resurrected it, Michael. I am um, updating it regularly, but I'm not on a set schedule right now. I have some great write-ups of the 2020s from Cassaba. Uh, I had a chance to taste the 2020s from 16 Mile. Holy crap. Like, there's a Chardonnay there that knocked my socks off. And um, the 2020s from Chateau de Charme are all recently posted. I recently visited 180 Winery, which is the old uh, Diprofio. Yeah. And I was I wasn't sure what to expect. I was surprised, but in a good way. So stay tuned on underwinerview.ca to check that out. All right. Did you uh, did you do your uh, Bastor La Montagne review? Bastor La Montagne? The Sauternes we went to in January. Oh, uh, no, I haven't had a chance to write about that yet. Just just finished my report on that. I haven't posted it yet, but uh yeah. It was a, it was a fantastic tasting. I I I enjoy it's it's kind of funny like it was we, fr- it was my first deep dive into Sauternes. That's it, and I think like just with our regular drinking habits, like we're not reaching for sweet wines very often. Mm. But I forget how much I enjoy them when they're done well. Yeah, very much so. All right, well, Andre, it's been great sitting outside. So uh, I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. He's Andre Brew of AndreWineReview.ca, and as usual, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.